Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Matthew Jordan, and I'm an instructor at McMaster University, a psychology researcher, and a funk musician. I'm extremely excited to be joined today by Stuart Ritchie, a psychologist at King's College London and the author of Science Fictions, Exposing Fraud, Bias, Negligence, and Hype in Science. This book is, in my view, the definitive resource for learning about how the current scientific system incentivizes bad behavior on the part of researchers, and it includes many sensible ways we can tangibly change the system for the better. Stuart, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me on the show. This book talks about so much peer review, replication crisis, data manipulation, researcher bias, media hype, and much more. But in this interview, I'd like to specifically focus on ways that even the most well-intentioned scientists can introduce errors or produce untrustworthy results without any malicious intent. If the listeners are looking for malicious intent, they can pick up the book. There are many excellent chapters on that as well. But before we get into that, uh, maybe we can start by speaking about the event that drew a lot of the problems you discuss to the attention of researchers and the public at large. And that event was the replication crisis. Um, So maybe let's just start here. What exactly is the replication crisis in science? Well, it was a term that was first used in in psychology in about 2012, I think, was when the first uh, time anyone talked about a crisis in, 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 of replicability. And um, it, it came about because there were two or three very prominent stories of uh, papers that uh, we, we, we thought we could rely on that were part of a, a larger kind of uh, uh, theory in, in, in psychology um, that when independent groups tried to replicate them, they found that they couldn't get the same results. So um, uh, one example was uh, in, in the world of social psychology was priming research. So the idea that um, you can unconsciously prime people with, um, uh, well, one example was uh, this experiment, which was done in the uh, in the 90s. And uh, the idea was that you could prime people with um, uh, the, the, the idea of, of elderly people. So you had them do a little experiment in the lab and it was just about like filling in sentences that were in- incomplete. Um, and unbeknownst to half of the participants, they were shown words that had to do with old people and the other half were just shown kind of random words. So the words were stuff like, I don't know, gray. Hmm. Uh, I think one of the words was Florida, which in the US is associated <laughs> with older people. Yes. Um, and then the idea, the idea, or the kind of major result of the of the experiment was that the people who had seen the the words that related to, related to older people walked more slowly out of the lab than the people who uh, who, who, who had just seen random words. Um, and so the idea was that the kind of the the words had primed the concept of being elderly, being old, being being slow, and and thus the people actually behaved differently, even though they'd just been unconsciously primed of this. It's not like they were they were told to do this, or or it was even hinted at them to to walk more slowly. Um, and that kind of spawned a whole, or or that was part of a whole um, line of research on this kind of idea of behavioral priming, where you know words and concepts and metaphors can prime people's actions and behaviors and, and beliefs in really quite strong ways. Um, a few of those f- famous studies were included in, um, uh, in in the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. They were published in some of the top uh, psychology journals. But around about 2011, 2012, people started actually doing direct replications of them. So instead of doing 
what's been called conceptual replications, where you kind of do the same experiment, but can add your own twist or, or move on and do something different. People actually tried to run exactly the same experiments again, and they found not a great set of results. Um, that is, they found um, that they couldn't find the same results. And when they could find, uh, uh, the, the, when the results were statistically significant, that is that they were, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, distinguishable from chance in some way, we, I'm, I'm sure we'll get into what that, that term means, statistically significant and all the trouble Absolutely. it caused. But um, yeah, it, when, when they were distinguishable from chance in some way, they had much, much smaller effects than the ones that have been published. So basically, there's loads of this research in the psychology literature, which seems to be unreliable and was hitherto not really thought of as being unreliable, was hitherto thought of as being the kind of foundation for lots and lots of future research. Um, And so various other things happened, including a really prominent fraud case and a couple of other things around about 2011-12. And then people started thinking, wow, this this is what we might call a crisis. This is really quite serious. And so since then, um, psychologists have tried to do these large-scale attempts to replicate lots and lots of studies that are published in some of the top journals in psychology, um, and then in social science more generally, economics. Um, and then the, the idea has kind of bled out into other fields of science as well. Um, so you're seeing ecologists talk about this, evolutionary biologists, cell biologists, um, uh, machine learning researchers, computer science researchers chemists talk about it um uh, and um it, it kind of it kind of gets further and further out um away from psychology um, and, and scientists in general um uh, have been have been realizing that they've got all these major problems of replicability they can't seem to get the same results very reliably uh, as the original studies do and I, you know i should also add to the less medical research which is probably the scariest uh, part mm-hmm. of that I was taught in my, you know, high school scientific classes that replication is kind of the cornerstone of the scientific process, right? No results in science mean anything until someone else can verify the whole thing. That was the point of having scientific literature in the first place. People could publish their discussion of what they did. If you look back at, you know, in the 16th and 17th century, we've got these long rambling stories of members of the Royal Society telling you exactly everything they did in the day and what what happened as a result uh, so that other scientists could attempt to do the same. If replication is this so-called benchmark of uh, the, the scientific process, how could it be possible that so many of these major findings and results were unable to meet this basic criterion for what we define as scientific fact? It's a great, it's a great question. The, um, the, the whole point of writing a scientific paper in the first place, you know, why scientific papers were invented was to share uh, uh, the methods and 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 you know the the understanding is that in theory at least you might not have all the the money you might not be able to create a new particle accelerator or or, or uh, whatever it happens to be but in theory you should be able to go back and do the same experiment again and get something similar right. to the results. Um, the there are many reasons. One is that simply the papers don't report what was actually done in the experiment. I don't mean that in a, and again, you know, you use the word kind of malicious. I don't mean that that, that it's done in a sort of malicious way. It's just that the papers are sloppily written so they don't actually describe what the scientists did accurately. And that's what a lot of would-be replicators have found. They've gone uh, uh, with the intention of replicating a paper. This happened very prominently in cancer research where um, 50 papers were selected for for replication um, and they couldn't, not a single one of them, they couldn't even, uh, um, um, for, for not one single one of those papers, they couldn't even begin to, sorry, I'm getting myself into all double negatives here. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> 
for not one of those papers um, could the the would be uh, would be replicators um, actually replicate the study without having to go and contact the authors and 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 uh, and have a huge back and forth with them and ask them for loads of details and the authors had to like email postdoctoral researchers who used to work in their labs and don't anymore and say, what exactly did you do with this? What reagent did you use here? Which strain of, of cell uh, of cells did you use here? Um, uh, and had to go back and, 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 and do all that. So that's one problem is that the, 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 the original papers just don't actually report what was done, um, which seems amazing, really. I mean, uh, the whole point of a scientific paper, as I say, is that it reports that. And, and what if you, you know, God forbid, what if you go out, walk out and get hit by a bus tomorrow? Someone should be able to look back at your uh, research that you published, and uh, and and, uh, and and run that same experiment again. Otherwise, the contribution that you've made to science is is a bit unclear. So, mm-hmm. and that's one that's one reason. The other reason is that um, well, some some uh, papers are just made up. That's the most extreme reason. Some papers are just the 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 the, the experiment never happened in the first place. It was just falsified. Um, that's the really kind of uh, hardcore uh, uh, malicious end. Um, and then uh, the other reason is that the um, the statistics that are reported, the way that the experiment is written up um, is biased um, or spun in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so the statistics are, are are not done accurately. They're done with a with sort of a sometimes unconscious intention of finding particular results uh, and and they and and thus um, they're, they're found that we can get into more detail uh, about that. Um, or they're written in such a way that makes it seem like the results are more, uh, mm-hmm. uh, powerful, more interesting, more groundbreaking than they actually are. So um, that's the kind of hype aspect of it. That scientists um, don't just hype up their results when they talk about them in the press or you know to the media or whatever it happens to be, um, but they hype the results up within the scientific papers themselves. So actually, the way that they're written up, if you dig into the numbers, um, often often doesn't reflect um, what was found. So there's all these different reasons. And that's you know what each chapter of the book is. There's kind of there's a fraud mm-hmm. chapter and a bias chapter and a, a negligence chapter where the scientists have just made mistakes. Sure. They've just they've just um, made, made a typo in their in their in their paper, or they've um, they've uh, uh, for, forgotten to um, to do some really important part of their lab procedure, like um, like uh, making sure that everything's sterilized. And so there's this big problem in cell biology where they have all this contamination that comes in and contaminates loads of papers thousands of papers might have been affected by this problem um, or they get the statistics wrong and so there's there's a, there's there's loads of different ways it can happen but it all adds up to a scientific literature that's full of papers which you just can't rely on that they look as if they're scientific papers they are written up as if they're scientific papers they're often put out into the media as if they're real scientific contributions but they don't actually uh, uh, they don't actually form the foundation that we need to advance our knowledge of the world Yeah, it's really important the way you point out how many of these issues are systematic problems with the way that science itself is conducted, the way that we apply for grants, write papers, gather data, analyze data, publish those results, share them with the media. You you kind of chronicle in an amazing way how each stage of this scientific process works and how error uh, can creep in at each of the stages. Maybe you can take us through that uh, those stages of the scientific process from writing a grant to publication and beyond in the book, you have an excellent kind of story. And so maybe for the listeners who are not scientists or who have never participated in the scientific process, uh, how does science actually get done in the 21st century? Yeah, I, I, the reason I added that is I think a lot of people, including, you know, I, I kind of noticed this when I talked to 
undergraduate students who have got all these papers. They're being given papers um, by their professors to read and analyze, and they don't actually know how those papers came about in the first place, like where where they came from. Um, and I think that's a similar uh, uh, situation that members of the public find themselves. They see papers, scientific papers, scientific studies discussed in the media. Um, particularly, you see a lot of them now in the in the pandemic. You know, there's endless scientific papers appearing constantly uh, about different aspects of, of, of COVID-19. Um, and, you know, you got to ask the question, like, where did they come from? So um, the, I have this description of the peer review process where I talk about, you know, first of all, you've got to get some money to do an experiment. So you've got to, um, you've got to, uh, so scientists spend an inordinate amount of time writing up grant applications to send to uh, government research uh, bodies or charities to ask for money to do the experiment. So you've got to try and differentiate yourself there. And instantly there's a point where, you know, some certain biases can come in. You can write up uh, your intentions, the, the, your, your plans for what you're going to do in a way that make it sound like, you know, you're going to make an absolutely massive, exciting breakthrough and, and produce all this groundbreaking research, which maybe is uh, is not is not necessarily <laughs> what you're going to do. Maybe you're going to make an incremental contribution, which is fine. But, you, you know, there's, there's that competition comes in there. And so you have to uh, uh, kind of hype things up a little bit. Um, and then once you've got the money, which is, doesn't happen uh, uh, very often, you know, rejection is very, very common for grant applications. But if mm-hmm. say, let's say you do get a grant application and you run the experiment, uh, uh, whatever it happens to be, the study, and that can sometimes take years or days or whatever it happens to be uh, across different uh, different fields of research. Um, um, and then you'll ordinarily, you'll analyze it with some sort of statistics. At which point, uh, there are lots of biases that can creep in. Um, we can talk about that in more detail of the actual, you know, statistical biases. But um, that, that's that's one point. That's one kind of weak point where scientists are um, are, are running the analysis of an experiment that they themselves did and thus they have a kind of idea as to what they want it to look like what they want those results to look like what sort of things they want to be able to say on the basis of those results and so given that scientists are human beings you can see why uh that would be that would be a a, a possible source of bias then they submit the the paper once they've written up done the analysis they write it all down send it to a, a scientific journal um and there's another point at which uh another kind of weak point is that um, I'm, I'm making the assumption that they send it to a scientific journal, but actually, um, if you don't get the results you want and uh, any kind of fiddling with the data, any kind of biased fiddling with the data doesn't help you get those results, you often just stick the paper in the file drawer, right? So that's a, that's a kind of a, an anachronistic term um, for, for people uh, uh, not publishing the research they want, but this idea of the file drawer effect where um, if you if you find disappointing results, you find results that don't uh, support your your particular theory that make it look like the drug you're investigating doesn't work or the particle you theorize doesn't exist or whatever it happens to be, um, you would just chuck that one in the file drawer rather than sending it off to an exciting you know journal to to, to get published. And the journals themselves are also only interested in or mainly interested in results that they see as advancing science in some way. So um, that's uh, that doesn't necessarily include here's my boring flat results that don't make any that don't uh, really um uh, uh discover anything new and um, but it does include flashy exciting uh results that seem to um ad- advance our knowledge in some in some major uh, uh um and and you know substantive way so there's an, there's another point where bias can come in is that the journal editor so who's in charge of choosing which articles um get get accepted into into their journal 
they are, are interested in the most exciting and flashy research too. Then, of course, it gets sent out for peer review. Uh, so it's sent to other scientists who review your paper and check. Uh, uh, they're supposed to check whether the statistics are right and uh, check whether um, uh, you're, you're making claims that are actually based on the on the on the data and of course the problem there is that those those people are scientists themselves too right those are busy scientists who are very prone to taking their eye off the ball when it comes to peer review they're not often provided with the raw data that you collected they're just provided with your summary and your write-up of it i've already said that scientists often write up their papers as if um the results were you know, much more exciting and, and interesting than they than they really were so there's a kind of a the spin problem there um mm. and peer reviewers are not necessarily um, trained, they're not. They're certainly not paid. Uh, they they do this out of the goodness of their hearts, and so it's not something that is a. Um, the, the system is not as, as as good as it could be for 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 doing for for being what it's supposed to be, which is the kind of ultimate um, gatekeeping device for keeping out bad science from from the literature. So there's another another uh, uh, problem, and then once the paper is actually published in the journal, if if it actually gets in. Um, because of course the peer reviewers can write a really nasty review and get your papers get your paper uh, rejected um, from the journal. Um, but if it does get accepted, then there's another problem, which is when <laughs> the 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 paper actually makes it out into the real world, and all sorts of hype and uh, you know extra publicity and marketing can come in there. So that's all the kind of the, the, the all the kind of weak points along the process of you know from doing the experiment all the way to uh, to doing it. and that's and that's without even discussing you know how you set the experiment up in the first place. I mean, maybe it was just a bad study, right? There's lots of reasons why um, certain types of research, certain types of study, and these are specific to the kinds of subjects, you know, um, uh, that, that, that are being researched. Um, so maybe the participants you had in your study are, are a biased subsection of the population. And so actually really, no matter what you dis- you discovered on them, it wouldn't be generalizable to the general population. Um Maybe you use the wrong statistical test that everyone's been using, but it's actually incorrect. Um, maybe you, uh, you know, there's all sorts of reasons that are specific to different subjects that might mean that the research was bad in the first place. So, you know, even even taking that into account, there's all these different ways where um, research can 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 uh, can can fall apart essentially. And so we end up with at the at the end of that, we end up with a a literature that doesn't actually represent all the science that's been done. So there's an amazing study, which I, I cite in the, in the book, where it was on antidepressants. So it was on trials of antidepressants. And at the start of the process, um, they knew this because there was a registry for these, for these trials. So they knew that 50 studies had been done, which, um, which showed that the antidepressant worked, and 50 or so had been done that showed that the antidepressant didn't work. So it was about 50-50. That's what the reality was, that that's that, you know 50 positive trials and 50 negative trials. But by the time they'd been through this whole system that I just described, um, almost all of those negative trials had disappeared. Um, not Very, very few of them got published. Uh, very, very few of them got um, got cited in future. And some of the studies that, that originally appeared negative were spun to make it look as if they were positive. So the actual, the, the way that the literature looks is a really distorted view of the actual science that's been done. And that is the main problem. Yeah, I'm reminded of, a, of an excellent uh, quote you had at some point in the book where you're describing that science, unlike many other areas of inquiry or fields or lines of work is actually meant to be, you know, the sum total of all of our knowledge and understanding about the world, including 
our confessions of stuff not being understood or not going the way we wanted. I forget the analogy you make, but in my head, it was something to the effect of, you know, when you build a product and it doesn't work, you don't put that on the market. But um, in science, if you run a study and it doesn't work, you really should be putting that in the literature because our responsibility as scientists is to kind of say everything there is to say about everything that we are investigating. Yeah, another another good analogy for it, I think, is is to think of it like the historical record. You know, historians right. know when they look at the historical record, they know that lots of sources are really biased. Um, history is written by the victors. You know, is is the classic is the classic phrase. But right. that you know that that uh, stands in for loads of different biases and and uh, uh, ways that you know. Um, uh, uh, historical sources can be distorted um and so you have to do your historiography and you have to say well no i kind of i kind of rate this source more reliable than this one and, and so on unfortunately the scientific literature is like that too but it shouldn't be there's no reason uh, uh in the perfect world that the scientific literature should be full of biases and full of um holes essentially where you know there's just no research published even though that research was done um the the, sci- the the historical record or the archaeological record even is full of holes because we'd expect that you know mm-hmm. things rot right. away and don't turn into you know archaeological discoveries um people destroy uh you know historical uh, r- records that were that are not favorable to whatever faction they're from this happens all the time but in science that shouldn't happen the scientific literature is supposed to be you know a, a list as you say of things that have been done by scientists positive or negative they're experimenting right they're not gonna they're not gonna uh uh have exciting results every single time they're not gonna make a groundbreaking discovery in every single experiment but they should be putting that out there into the world so the scientific literature is a bit like the historical record um but it shouldn't be Hmm. yeah i mean it's so fascinating because as a as a student studying psychology, um, and even now doing psychology research, you know you're told by your supervisor or your PI or grad students, you know, oh, we, don't, if it, there's a null result, you can don't publish that, right? We don't disclose null results. It, that, that that's not fit for publication. And so it's it's interesting how a lot of these kind of issues that you're discussing. Um, are just kind of embedded into the culture of what is considered uh, acceptable to share with the scientific community um, in, in the results of your analysis. Maybe you can say a bit about why uh, journals might be hesitant to produ- uh, publish results that are uh, don't find flashy findings or, for that matter, don't find significant findings at all, null results as they're called. And so why researchers then might not be interested in uh, sharing those results. And so we end up with this file drawer problem, as you describe. Yeah, it's kind of a vicious circle because the researchers know that the journals are not interested in in, in publishing it. And so they, they file drawer the stuff. And so they only send the positive results to the journals. And then the journals get used to just publishing lots of positive results. And so it kind of goes on and on like that. And uh, as I say, in a vicious circle. Um, and yeah. the reason is that, you know, we, well, so there's, there are several reasons. We all have a, a kind of human, I think, bias towards uh, exciting stuff rather than boring stuff, right? It's a, it's, it seems an obvious thing to say, but it's, um, but it's, uh, uh, we, we all want to see stuff happening. We want to see progress being made. Um, a trial that says this drug um, uh, is really effective against depression, say, is more interesting to us than a trial that says we tried this drug and it doesn't work. So there's that bias in the first place. People want to help. Scientists want to help. They want to uh, uh, have some um, uh, you know, I, I, uh, have some idea that they are um, 
that, that what they're doing is, is is useful, that they're making a contribution to the world. So that that's one that's one reason. Um, another reason is that positive results are cited more, and journals are in some uh, not all journals, but many journals are commercial enterprises. They're owned by for profit publishers, and they want their journals to be successful in the kind of marketplace of different of uh, of different scientific outlets. Um, and success is measured in the number of citations that articles get. Um, and because of this bias towards positive and you know interesting and and uh, fruitful results, scientists will tend to cite positive results more often than than, than negative or null ones. Um, so the journals get more attention. The journals get more citations. They get more. Um, they get a higher uh, H index, which is sorry, a higher um, impact factor, I should say, which is the way that we measure uh, a journal's uh, number of citations. So the really high impact factor journals are places like Nature and Science. And they've got, you know, uh, impact factors in the 30s and 40s. You know, the average paper that gets published there will will get cited, you know, 40 times. Um, it's a bit more complicated than that, but that's basically what it means. Um, uh, and and so that's what that's what they want. They want their, their their journal to remain prestigious and to be a place where you, if you know, if you send your research, then it's it's among the the articles that are really making a big uh, splash in the world of science. And so that can really push editors towards. Um, not being interested in publishing uh, null null results, and you know, and 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 again, uh, that feeds back to the scientists themselves. And as you say, you often talk to people who they they, they see a null result and they come to you and say, "I'm really disappointed. I found a null right. result in this experiment. Um, uh, re- you know, I'm really discouraged <laughs> by this. I have it with you know my my students regularly say." unfortunately this one wasn't significant and i have to say to them (laughs) i know that's what that's how you feel like i know that it seems disappointing but that shouldn't be you know if an experiment is interesting and was set up in a a decent way the fact that you didn't find anything will be interesting too and and Mm -hmm. does count Mm -hmm. as scientific progress so Mm -hmm. this whole um the addiction we have to finding positive results is 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 really um uh, throwing science off off track I will say that was definitely the most unexpected experience I had coming to graduate school in psychology. I didn't do my undergrad in psychology, so I wasn't really, uh, I I did my undergrad in math and physics where we don't really talk about significant results so much, certainly not at the undergraduate level. Um, uh, But then when I got to grad school and I heard people saying exactly uh, what you're describing, unfortunately, this wasn't significant. Oh, I, I did, you know, I got a no result. I I, I I had the exact same feeling you did of thinking, but the result is whatever the result is. That yeah, is yeah. the scientific process. Yeah. Our goal is to kind of query nature and let nature kind of tell us what, you know, whether our hypotheses are right or wrong. And whatever yeah. the answer is, that's the answer. And we can't have preferences because uh, that 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 defeats the whole purpose of doing science in the first place. I have a quote from Darwin in the book where he says, you know, a, science, a scientist, I can't remember the exact phrasing of it, but a scientist should have no desires about their results. They should just have a heart of stone. And I think that's, <laughs> um, and I think that's you know, it's unrealistic because we are all human beings, but, yeah. but, it's, but it's what we should be telling students rather than, I think, I think um, either explicitly or implicitly, a lot of senior researchers communicate to students that what they want is positive results, right? What they want is, is um, results that they can, that are statistically significant and that they can publish in 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 uh, in, in in journals in, in big exciting journals, um, and you know I have examples in the book of scientists explicitly saying that to their students. So um, mm-hmm. there's a there's a, a leaked email from a a, a scientist that I quote um, where he 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 says you know to his to his uh, graduate students um, 
I really, I really wish we could just get this result to be significant because I don't really, you know, I don't really understand why it's why it's not significant. Rather yeah. than saying what you should have said, which was, "Oh well, those are the results. Let's write them up in an honest way, and you know, <laughs> maybe that'll still be of interest yeah. to people because we set up an experiment in such a way that actually makes a difference." So, um, uh, the, you know, this this bias is it, it's rarely as explicit as that, a, 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 like a literal email saying, "Could you please go back and run the statistics again and make this make this yeah. one work." In inverted commas, um, but it's still a, 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 a thing that which is implicitly, you know, that kind of that slump that people get when, oh, oh it's not significant. You know, that's not how it should be, right? Yeah, and and like you mentioned, you know, we kind of have a tendency towards exciting results or you know flashy ideas or super uh, numerically significant uh, results as well. But you know maybe part of the problem here is that scientists are not educated as part of their scientific education in a lot of the issues that you describe in your book. When you talk about the scientific process from grant writing to publication to media promotion, you know, I only really, like many people, really only discovered how that process worked a couple of years into being in graduate Mm -hmm. school. And so we're not really informed uh, about how these different parts Play, play together when we're just starting in our scientific education. And in reality, what we should be learning is that science, most of the time, is a rather slow, incremental, frankly, somewhat boring process yep. that as individual scientists, we can be invested in and we can be excited about and we can love our data and love our studies. But the expectation that everything is going to be uh, flashy and exciting every time probably uh, does a disservice. It's another. It's another uh, uh, thing. Like you know, I mentioned peer reviewers aren't aren't uh, uh, you know aren't 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 paid or 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 even trained to how to do peer review. Like no one ever actually formally tells you how to do this. Um, and it's another part of the scientific process where you're just sort of thrown in there. You go into science to to you know you're trained in you know maybe lab techniques or whatever it happens to be, uh, statistical techniques. But you're not trained in this general scientific ecosystem and how things work, um, and, and and that's you know it's part of why I wrote this book is to is to give people a a kind of view of the inside of how that of how that process really works. Yeah, it's fantastic, and that's why it's such a useful resource. I'd like to turn now to something that we've been kind of hinting at throughout this conversation, which is the way that statistical analysis can uh, can go awry and can introduce a great deal of bias into um, the production of scientific knowledge. Maybe to people who have never really done statistics or thought much about it, why is it not the case that you have your data, you run your statistics, you get your answer, and you publish the results? Why is the process of statistical analysis uh, not that simple? Unfortunately, a lot of scientists seem to think that it is that simple, uh, and that's and that's unfortunately uh, uh, the the reality. But it, but you're right; it isn't that simple. Um, and that, you know, the main reason for that is that statistics is itself an evolving scientific subject. Um, the, the the statistical techniques that we use are not the same ones that were being used. Um, uh, uh, you know, just just a few years ago, new new techniques get developed all the time, and uh, uh, weaknesses in those statistical techniques are are often discovered. Now. There are some things which have been around for a long time and have been debated endlessly, and uh, 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 and so on. But unfortunately, there are ways that um, those statistical techniques can be manipulated, uh, consciously or unconsciously, by scientists who are using them. So it's not just as simple as as you know we're going to run this particular statistical test on this data and we get the result and then and then that's it. There are ways once you've got your result of saying 
well, I wonder if we can just try that again uh, with, you know, maybe just a slight little change. Ah, I didn't think of this beforehand, but actually, actually it is right if we drop out this particular participant or actually it is right if we control for this variable that we didn't think of. So maybe we control for uh, uh, how tall the participants were or we control for um, their sex or we control for uh, uh, their socioeconomic status or whatever it happens to be. We've, let's throw that in. You know, I think that probably makes most sense. You can convince yourself into running a very a very specific analysis um, that wasn't what you would have originally done. It wasn't what you would have said you were going to do before you touched the data, but it, but it's something which uh, uh, you 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 run. And, and critically, the main problem with that is the more of these analyses that you run, the more of these um, new kind of permutations on the on the original analysis you run, the more likely you are to run into just a, a chance finding, a false positive result. Um, and uh, that's one of the major reasons that so many of these papers are unreliable is that the scientists just sort of did the analysis as they went along. You know, I've, 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 I've said this um, in the book, but I think if you asked the average person, um, it, you know, you just, you, just, you just bumped into someone in the street and said, do you think scientists plan out their analysis from from before they look at their data and then you know they have a really clear idea of, of how their hypothesis is going to be tested and then they get their data and then they run that analysis and then and then that's the end of it or that you know that's option a option b is they kind of have a vague idea in their head and then they collect the data and they sort of think well i'll try this one and i'll try this one and uh, this analysis didn't quite give me what i want so i'm going to just try this little variation on it or i'm going to drop this person out and they let themselves be led by the data into an analysis um you know which do you think they would do and i think the average person would say well obviously it's a right the b sounds like a terrible idea but scientists are doing b all the time scientists are constantly doing b they are constantly um uh, uh letting the data lead them into their analysis rather than having a principled plan for their analysis before they touch any of the data. So, um, and this is one, again, one of the major reasons that we get false positive results, because if you just keep trying stuff, if you just keep messing around with the numbers, you will eventually find something, uh, uh, something publishable, um, uh, probably something that's statistically significant. Um, and, and that is, you know, a, a massively underappreciated fact again when senior scientists say to their phd students maybe just try that one again hmm. what they're what they're saying is roll the dice again and hmm. there's a possibility if you roll the dice again you will get a you know a double six or whatever it is you're looking for hmm. um which which maybe just came up by chance and is not really a reflection of the actual you know uh, phenomenon that you're studying we've been kind of circling around this notion of significant results having you've talked about this idea kind of in quotes of having a good result whatever that means and the kind of benchmark that we've established in science for what it means for a result to be significant uh, is tied to this this concept of a p value which as you discuss in the book uh something some 80 plus percent of textbooks that define the p value do it wrong yeah. uh and so this is a deeply misunderstood idea. There are entire courses on Coursera. Daniel Lackins has a whole course just on understanding a p-value. I mean, this is often given, you know, 20 minutes of introductory psychology material, but you could, we can take a whole Coursera course on it. Um, maybe let's attempt to just do it now in a couple minutes. I'm sure you've rehearsed this definition many times. Uh, what exactly is a p-value and how did it come to be kind of the gold standard of what it means for a scientific 
result or statistical analysis to be legitimate or significant. Yeah, you, I mean, there are lots of other there are lots of ways to analyze your data. That's you know kind of an answer to your previous question as well. Is that there are lots of different ways of doing it. It's just that the p-value way of doing it. So this idea of null hypothesis significance testing that it's been called has become the dominant scheme that people use. So a p-value is. The, the in a world where the, uh, the 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 thing that you're looking for is not true, so uh, then the, that's what scientists call the null hypothesis. So the null hypothesis is true. There's actually nothing going on in your data. Um, your drug doesn't work. Um, your uh, um, whatever what, your 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 particle doesn't actually provide an energy signal. Um, your uh, you know you, your your brain region isn't actually related to this particular um aspect of people's personality whatever it is it doesn't it doesn't happen right so imagine a world where that just is not happening what is the probability that you would get results that look like the results in your data if in fact there's nothing going on right and 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 you know me me saying that there and it it does have a more technical definition that's a that's a kind of a a a, a popularized definition of it Mm -hmm. but um uh me saying that there makes it sound like it's you know relatively straightforward, but when you think about it, it's actually quite a backwards thing. There, you're asking, you're asking if 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 my result doesn't exist, how likely would it be that I would get my my data? Um, and obviously, what you want is a really low likelihood of that because what you want is your data to look as if uh, um, to to make it look as if uh, your result does does actually. Uh, your your hypothesis is actually correct that, that there is something tr- you know um uh, i almost use the word true there but there is something uh uh, uh you know uh, realistic about your hypothesis your hypothesis is compatible with with the data mm-hmm. or at least incompatible with there being nothing going on mm-hmm. so that quite complex convoluted thing is constantly uh um misstated in Statistics in in, uh, in in scientific papers, in statistical textbooks, as you say, you know, you, you, um, it's a psychology textbooks. I think eighty nine percent of them is the number that, that that got the definition wrong in some way. Um, there was a kind of audit study that was done, um, and they they define it as things like um, the probability that the null hypothesis is wrong, which is not which is not what I just said, and it turns out to be slightly different, um, or um, the the the. Uh, the probability that your results are important or the um the strength of your results or the importance of your results or you know th- there are lots of different ways of 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 kind of coming up with um you know, what a p value means that kind of get at what we sort of mean by it but are actually technically wrong and and th- there's been this kind of um conflation of what we want the p value to tell us which is how exciting and important are my findings to what the p-value actually technically tells us, which is something very far off from that. But unfortunately, when where the p-value is is often used, it's it's basically a stand-in for this finding is real because um, Ronald Fisher, the uh, um, early twentieth-century um, statistician and geneticist, um, uh, and eugenicist, I should say as well, uh, not not a, not a, not a brilliant character, I must say. Um, but he did make many contributions to early statistics, and one of his contributions was to come up with this idea of statistical significance. So to choose a p-value threshold um, under which we will accept that the results are, you know, to some degree uh, of interest to us, and he chose the word significance, which to our ears sounds a bit different from how it sounded. You know, the kind of the definition of that word has shifted slightly from from how he first uh, uh, used it. 
But um, but his idea was that um, you know, if, if you keep getting results that are less than five percent, uh, have a p value that's lower than five percent, so zero point zero five. Um, then you know that can be classed as statistically significant, uh, um, and that was kind of his starting suggestion that you know maybe people would change the p value depending on or change the p value level depending on the experiment they're doing and the context of the results and so on. But actually, it's just become like the total hidebound, ingrained you know uh, uh, um, way that we do research, which is that we look for p values less than 0.05, and if they are less than 0.05, we consider that result statistically significant. And unfortunately, that has morphed into true in some extent, right? So it's it's statistically significant as, as results are the ones that are classed as probably true, and statistically non-significant results with p-values that are higher than 0.05 are classed as somehow not true or just chance in, in, in some way. And that's not technically correct. That's not what the statistics are telling us. And we need to have a much more nuanced understanding of what those statistics are telling us. But unfortunately, um, uh, that is the, the standard practice. And so psychologists and you know scientists across uh, essentially every field spend ages looking through their results tables in the, the p-value column and find anything that's lower than 0.05 and they put a little asterisk by it and they say, well, these are the results that are, that are in some sense true. So we turn this continuous number into an arbitrary sort of dichotomy between true and, and false. Um, and that is the decision on which people make their publication. Uh, so that's the, the, uh, uh, the, the, um, the criterion on which people make their publication decisions, right? If it's significant, they'll send it off to be published. If it's non-significant, it gets file drawered. Um, and so that's what can kind of, kind of deranges the scientific literature in, in, in so many ways. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really quite the the complicated process. And even when you're speaking there, uh, and you are, of course, a brilliant expositor of these ideas, even then it can be really difficult to wrap your head around. So I think yeah. an additional problem here is that statistics is just hard. And yeah. maybe yeah. we're not honest with ourselves a lot of the times in recognizing that what we are doing when we do statistical analysis is not at all an intuitive process. Yeah. This is a you know human tool we invented for making sense of complicated information in the world. And, you know, the fact that we give undergrads a single course in statistical analysis and then expect them to go out and uh, and do research is really kind of doing a disservice to just how complicated a lot of these ideas are. And I will say, having been in this field for a few years, I certainly don't feel entirely confident in a lot of the statistical analyses I do. And frankly, I'm not convinced that many of my peers or even uh, um, elders, as as it were, in in the field are either. So, I mean, I I think it's just really complicated to think through uh, a, a lot of these things. Uh, this idea of the p value, you have a wonderful <laughs> explanation in the book of um you know of course this this five percent right this p is less than five percent which is to say you know if there were no phenomenon happening there would be a five percent chance that I would observe what I observe. So that 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 is a good you know, uh, inclination to suggest that what you're seeing is actually, you know, uh, noteworthy or compatible with there actually being a phenomenon. As you say, we want to avoid the word true. Um, uh, but, uh, there are people who run analyses where P is just slightly bigger than 5%. And so because we have this arbitrary cutoff, you have these incredible examples of our results are trending towards significance. <laughs> our results are approaching the significance threshold. You know, these, 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 when you really think about and understand what's happening here, just this totally arbitrary cutoff uh, leading people to kind of um, 
over inflate maybe the 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 importance of 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 their results. So we have this kind of notion of the p-value, and we've kind of touched on this before, but I want to really concretize and get this word uh, in in the ears of our listeners. What does it mean to p-hack? Well, this is another uh, term that came about around about the time of the replication crisis that people realized that people were doing p-hacking. That is, they were running their analysis in such a way as to lower the p-value, um, but, but they weren't doing it in a in a um, you know a consistent or principled way that actually made sense to do with the, with, with their data, they were doing it in a way that um, essentially satisfied their biases. That is to find positive results, to find p is less than 0.05. So the idea of just running the analysis a few more times, maybe oh you know that that participant they weren't paying attention, so drop them out of the analysis and run run it again and see what you get. Um, and if you if you then at that point. Uh, you know, having run the analysis, maybe you had 50 participants and you run it with 49. And then suddenly when you run the analysis with 49 participants, your p-value is less than 0.05. At that point, you say, that's good enough. Uh, I'll publish that. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll send that off for publication. That sounds like a kind of uh, absurd caricature, but it's it's actually something which happens very commonly in, 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 in research. And people have admitted to this, you know, they kind of look back at their previous research and said, you know, actually, a lot of the stuff I was doing was probably was probably um, unreliable for those p hacking reasons. Um, that's one, you know, dropping participants is one thing you can do. Running, uh, you know, as I mentioned, you know, running an extra covariate, so controlling for something that you didn't plan uh, to control for. Um, once you've looked at the results, uh, is 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 another way. Um, uh, running lots and lots and lots of measures and then just cherry picking the ones that were statistically significant is another way to p hack. That is to find. Um, less results that are less than that have p-values less than 0.05 but that don't actually reflect the full reality of of what you were doing another way of thinking about it actually is that p is that p-hacking is a bit like publication bias but at the level of a single paper or a single analysis because you're only um you're choosing you're picking and choosing the p-values that are statistically significant and publishing them and not publishing all the other analyses you ran that uh, that, that 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 had p-values of you know 0.06 or you know 0.5 or something you know really really high p-values that all scientists you know fear to fear to see in their analysis and so and so it's this unprincipled uh, way of doing it um obviously in some cases people can run different analyses maybe it's actually really interesting to control for uh, socioeconomic status and see what the results look like after that control, you know, whatever it happens to be. That's a very common uh, uh, thing to, to add new uh, uh, analyses to a paper and check the, the sensitivity of the results to different uh, situations. That's completely fine. But the problem is when people come in and say, uh, we don't really have a plan for this analysis, so we're just basically going to keep doing it. And then you, you, your cognitive biases tell you to stop when you get a result that looks like it's publishable. Um, and so that's where this, um, the systemic stuff we've been talking about, the journals favoring significant results, uh, has a real influence over the way that scientists are actually doing the maths in their, um, in their, in their studies. Because when you see that 0 0.05, the thing that comes up in your mind is, ah, now I can publish. So, uh, and that's leading to terrible biases in the, in the literature. Yeah, it's um, it's really a lot to wrap one's uh, one's mind around. What I like about this kind of emerging new study of the problems in science is that there's some great uh, 
terminology. We've talked about this file drawer problem. We've got this idea of p-hacking. Uh, let's just do one more to get kind of these fun words on the table. Uh, it's called hypothesizing after the results are known or harking. So what does it mean uh, what, this, and this is another kind of issue with statistical analyses, very closely related to this idea of p-hacking. But what is harking? This is something you see quite commonly in uh, medical trials, actually. In the medical trials, they they have the um, the slightly more boring name for it of outcome switching, which is nowhere near as fun as harking. Um, but harking is where you run your analysis and then you think, well, what you know, what what hypotheses would have been compatible with this analysis? What could I have said before I ran this analysis that would have um, that would have meant that I, w- I would I was proved right by these by these data? So, say you run, uh, say your 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 trial that you've you've done is of um, a drug to reduce people's headache, say, um, and then you collect you collect a few different uh, you collect a few different um, uh, measures, headache, and you also measure blood pressure, say. Um, and it turns out that your drug didn't actually measure head. It doesn't actually have any effect on headache, um, but it does lower people's blood pressure. So then you can say to yourself, well, you know, let's, let's write the hypothesis up as if this study was about blood pressure all along. And you think that sounds quite blatant, but it happens all the time in medical literature. And there's loads of evidence that, that lots of clinical trials are, um, are, 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 have been switched. The outcome has been switched in, 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 in this way. And you can always make it sound plausible to yourself. Like, oh yeah, I, you know, I was kind of interested in, in blood pressure. I mean, I wouldn't have included it as a, as a, a variable in the analysis if I wasn't going to look at it. And, and so what, what was planned as a kind of secondary, maybe interesting, but not that important analysis becomes the main, the main, uh, exciting part of the analysis that, and, and the, and the one that you write up as the, as the, the, the primary part of your your study. So that harking uh, problem can really come in when uh, you haven't planned things out in advance, um, that you uh, that you basically are, um, you know, like I said before, letting the data lead you into the analysis and your hypothesis that you're, that you're making, rather than having a really strong, theoretically derived hypothesis that you plan to test right from the start, and then you get your data and you test only that hypothesis, and that's it, which is kind of how things, how things should be. Um, uh, but the problem is that papers are written up as if, um, the, this kind of process of kind of just bumbling around until you find something was what people had planned all along. So there's this difference people draw in the literature between exploratory research on one hand and confirmatory research on the other. Um, so exploratory research is, is basically what I just described there. You're kind of just checking out what's related to what, and you're just, just running some statistical analysis just to see what happens and, 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 and checking a few things. Um, um, and confirmatory research is where you really have a clear hypothesis and then you go out and test it. And the problem is that scientists do exploratory research and then write it up as if it was confirmatory research. So they they, they write their hypotheses basically after they've done the analysis. And that's what harking is. It sounds like a lot of what we're talking about and is kind of getting to this idea that the real enemy here is unpreparedness or not planning your analysis ahead of time, because it seems like we've got this, what they call the garden of forking paths. There's so many different ways to run your possible analyses. I think this is maybe one misconception about statistics like we discussed before is that, like you said, there's never just one test you can possibly run. There's a theoretically infinite many possible analyses you can run on your data and then infinitely many ways you could theorize it about it 
after you've done your analyses. So we've got these kind of p-hacking manipulations and then this harking, right? We can play with the statistics and then play with our theories like with infinite degrees of freedom uh, and then say whatever we want about it. And so it seems like the solution is to kind of specify in advance what it is we're doing and how we're planning to analyze it. And that is the process of pre-registration. So maybe I'd love if you could speak a bit about what is pre-registration, how does it work and how it could be used to solve some of these problems. Yeah, um, this is an idea that comes from medical trials, actually, which have been required to be registered since uh, about 2000, the year, year 2000, and then it kind of became a requirement to for publication in 2004. So around about that time, kind of turn of the century, people started uh, talking about registration for clinical trials. And that's because um, these are you know large taxpayer-funded projects, which um, were sometimes just disappearing. If they didn't get the results that the pharmaceutical company that was running the study wanted, uh, they would often just disappear into the file drawer and nobody would hear from them again. Um, uh, uh, and um, so, so in, as a way of sort of shaming uh, the pharmaceutical companies into publishing these, these results, they would make sure uh, that it, the, the, the the government or the um, uh, the journals would make sure that they were registered beforehand. So we'd make sure that there was a list, a clear list of um, uh, every medical trial that had human participants uh, uh, on a government website. So it was clinicaltrials.gov is the, is the, is the website. Um, and whenever you run a clinical trial, you would write it down. Um, and then there's an amazing study from uh, a few years ago where they looked at um, the number of studies that were that had positive results before the requirement for registering them. Um, and then the number of studies that had positive results after registration came in. And uh, after registration, the number of positive results goes down dramatically. So you get much more um, of the null results. And presumably, you know, the implication of this is that those null results were always there. It's just that they were hidden away in the file drawers um, before the replication, uh, sorry, the registration kind of kind of shamed people into publishing them. Because if, you know, if your study is written down on a website somewhere uh, and then you don't publish it for the next, you know, 20 years go by and you've not published it people are going to think you're being somewhat dishonest so um uh, uh and by the way i said pharmaceutical companies there but uh, obviously it doesn't it doesn't have to be pharmaceutical companies it can be you know universities or non-profits that run that run drug trials so um and 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 that's not been uh you know you might notice a contradiction between my previous answer and that one where i mentioned the outcome switching thing because even though people register trials they still often switch the outcome and they still often you know screw about with the statistics so it's not a you know panacea in any in any sense but it is something that is now being brought into other subjects because people realize that um as you say unpreparedness is really the, the major enemy here um uh the, the, it's so easy to reason yourself into uh an, an an analysis or a hypothesis that you didn't actually plan and so what researchers are now doing is um or they're being encouraged to do um and lots of journals are now encouraging people to do this and uh, and making this part of their kind of publication methods is writing down an analysis plan before you touch any of the data and posting it publicly on the internet. So you you basically, it's like I say in the book, it's like um, it's like Odysseus um, uh, tying himself to the mast when they're going past the, the, the sirens in the Odyssey. And he is, um, he's therefore not tempted to do anything, any other analyses. He's not tempted to, you know, do all that stuff we talked about before with p-hacking. He just runs one analysis. He just, you know, and, and isn't, isn't tempted by the, by the sirens call of, 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 of p-hacking. Um, and, and, uh, his, his hands are, his hands are tied and it basically ties the scientist's hands and stops them mucking about with the data. Um, now some scientists at this point say, well, wait a minute, doesn't that stop me exploring 
the data that I then collect. Maybe there's something that I, I didn't predict that I find, and there's lots of serendipitous discoveries in the scientific literature. Uh, you know, penicillin being the most famous one, which you know um, Alexander Fleming didn't didn't plan. He didn't he didn't write down a pre registration that he was going to look for the, the 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 mold growth that eventually became uh, penicillin. But he did he did discover it anyway. But the point is that you just be honest and transparent about what you were doing. So you can write down your pre-registration plan. And then in your paper, when you eventually write the paper, you can say, we did all the analyses that we pre-registered. We wrote down and posted online. We've done all them. Now we're going to do, we're going to have a bit of fun. We're going to explore the data and we're going to try some things that we've, we've thought of since then. That's completely fine. That's totally okay to do that as long as you're being transparent about what you did. And as I say, the problem in the past has been that people do all the exploration and then write it up as if it was, you know, a, conf- a, a, a confirmation of a, a hypothesis that they always had. Um, and so, um, uh, that's, you know, that's, that's where, that's where one of the, um, that's where one of the big uh, advances ha- has happened recently. And there's one extra little, uh, bit to this, which is the idea of a registered report, which is where the journal actually says to you, we will peer review your study plan, basically. So you tell us what you're going to do. We're going to send that to peer reviewers. Um, instead of waiting for you to collect all the data and all that, and then only then send it to peer reviewers, we're going to send the your general study plan to the peer reviewers, and they will work with you to make the study good. They'll, make the, they'll, they'll work with you to make the study acceptable. And at that point, we will say, we will publish the study, no matter no matter whether the results are positive, negative, ambiguous all over the place you know whatever it happens to be you know hard to hard to interpret we will publish it no matter what and at that point you've killed publication bias right because you've got a paper you've got that all-important publication you've got that all-important line on your cv no matter whether your results are positive or negative or 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 or, you know or, or anything in between um and so it takes away this weird motivation that people have for you know finding positive results all the time because they they know that that'll help them get published because the journal's already said they'll publish it so that this idea of doing a registered report you know and you know only you 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 get your method uh reviewed and then you go out and collect the data um and then whatever those data look like it gets published in the journal it's just a great idea um, several hundred journals are now offering this as a way of a way of publishing, which they they never did before. Um, it's still a tiny minority of all journals that exist in the world, but it's but it's a, but it's getting there. We're, we're making some progress um, in changing the way that journals look at uh, uh, publishing papers. And I would, you know, personally, it's not that I think that every single paper that isn't a registered report is, is dodgy in some way, but I would put more stock in a in a registered report than uh, than than one which you just can't know or, or even one that just has a pre-registration where they've written their their uh, analysis plan online uh, compared to a study where you just can't know whether uh the 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 hypotheses were, were written down and the analyses were planned out in advance of the data being collected it's really interesting you writing this book as a psychologist and being able to kind of uh go into some of these issues of human bias in how we do these analyses when you're talking about any researcher can reason their way into any analysis. You know, you do a certain analysis and, and, and then you get your good p-values and then you publish that. And so it's this interesting psychological phenomenon of needing to tie yourself to the mast, giving yourself as few degrees of analytical freedom as possible. And I guess the registered report is an amazing way to do that, to make sure that, you know, what that you're constraint you're putting the constraints on your own mind when you're in order to produce the best possible uh, science. 
So I think that you have a unique perspective on these problems as a person who studies the human mind yourself. Um, uh, maybe we can talk about one other kind of solution um, to these problems and then we can wrap up. Uh, is the system of publication itself. So we've been talking mostly about how scientists work, but maybe we can talk a bit about how uh, journals work. Uh, in particular, the open access movement, uh, open science in general, the role of preprints. Many people in science are well aware that there have been increasingly many preprint servers where people can publish their unpeer-reviewed um, manuscripts, just kind of in raw form to put on the internet so that other scientists can see their work and comment on it and incorporate it into the literature. What is the role of kind of open science, open data, freely available papers in your vision of the of scientific future that avoids many of the issues we've spent the last hour speaking about? Well, it all goes back to the, uh, the same issue, which is that scientists are not transparent enough about their research. Um, and again, I don't mean that in a, in a, you know, they're trying to hide something, although clearly there are cases where that's, where that's true, but scientists are just, uh, have, have just generally got themselves into a way of working that is not uh, transparent and open. Um, and the, um, the open access movement and the open science movement more generally is a way of trying to shed a bit more light on the scientific process, bring more light as a kind of, as the best disinfectant, I suppose, to, uh, to the scientific process. So, uh, as you say, it has many different uh, aspects. So starting with open access, it's this thing which many people will have encountered, which is they try to access a scientific paper that maybe they've seen discussed in the media, um, or, you know, they've, they've read, uh, or they're, or they're read it in a, about it in a book, or they're looking up uh, some new medical treatment that their doctors uh, suggested to them, whatever it happens to be, and they find that the paper is behind a paywall, um, which is weird because uh, they often have paid for that paper uh, through their taxpayer money, if, you know, if it was a government-funded bit of research. Um, so it's strange that they can't read about it, they can't look up the, the statistics, Um Oddly, the the the, the scientists themselves can't access it either, unless their university subscribes to the journal uh, and pays lots of money. So actually, the taxpayer is then paying again for the for the for the money. So they they for the research. So they've paid for the research to be done. They've then paid their universities again through their taxpayer money, um, who have to subscribe to these journals. So there's a kind of double payment system going on there. And of course, uh, peer reviewers, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, they don't get paid for their contributions. Uh, so loads of that money, it just goes into the profit margin of the companies that run the journals, um, which make huge, huge profits um, on their on their, uh, on their on their work. And that would be fine if they made huge profits, if what they were doing was particularly useful or particularly, you know, imp improved the quality of science in some dramatic way. Um, I don't particularly think it uh, it, it, they are doing that much to improve the quality of the science or the quality of the the, the, the papers that they publish. I think uh, the, the contribution of publishers is quite limited. But anyway, the open access movement seeks to solve that by um, trying to make uh, papers uh, available to anyone who wants to read them. Um, and this has been uh, a movement um, in, in, in some large part on the, on the part of funders, research funders, who now say you're going to have to publish your, your uh, data sorry, your, your, your paper in a way that's accessible to everyone. Otherwise, we won't give you any money or we'll, in fact, we'll give you extra money to pay the open access fees at the journal that you're sending your research to so that it's made open to everyone. So that's one part of the kind of open science movement is, is making 
research more open. And there's been some big successes in that. And there's some interesting stuff happening there as well um, with uh, governments kind of banding together and saying, we want our research to be made open access. Um, and journals are kind of um, are having to, or the journal publishers are having to change the way they think about publishing research because um, governments are going to ban researchers from submitting uh, their papers to journals that, that that kind of put them behind paywalls. So there's some interesting stuff happening with that that I talk about in the book. Um, but the broader open science movement um, also encourages things like um, open data. So putting your data sets online so anyone can access them, including the peer reviewers of the paper that you're that you're uh, that you're submitting. Um, so anyone can see what you're what you're doing. Anyone can check your um, maybe putting your code online as well, your analytic code, your statistical analysis, so everyone can see it. So people aren't just relying on your um, your work in the in, in the paper, the way you summarize your data. They're actually seeing those data. Um, uh, for themselves, they're seeing those data uh, uh, for 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 real, um, uh, uh, and you know the, the motto of the UK's uh, Royal Society, the, the kind of science supporting organisation, is um, take nobody's word for it. And open science is basically that is 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 that you shouldn't be taking anyone's word for it. You should just be as transparent as you possibly can, and you shouldn't ask people to take your word for the findings that you've you've, you've made. Um, so that's that's another aspect. Um, preprints are, that you mentioned are, are, are also part of this, where scientists put up their analysis, uh, put up their uh, an early version of their paper online for the whole world to see, and then solicit comments on it from other scientists before they uh, um, you know, send it to the journal for its final publication. So that kind of um, puts a new layer of scientific discussion into the process between you know the study being done and its publication, you get a lot of um, you can get a lot of peer review happening on those preprints. So they they happen uh, before the formal peer review occurs. So there's a lot more open discussion. Obviously, preprints are open to the world, so anyone can see them as well. So that's obviously part of the open access movement as well, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and that's a new way of sort of advancing science as well. You don't have these really long waits between you know uh, f- finishing a study and then having it published in a journal, which can sometimes take months or years because scientists and editors and peer reviewers are all very busy. Um, and, you know, one doesn't blame them for that, but that's just how that's just how the process is. But if you just upload your preprint online, then the world can see it immediately. And that's caused huge advances in, um, in, in areas like genetics, where the research is really moving very, very fast. And there's all these new techniques appearing and being put out into the world, uh, assessed, you know, you can put up your new technique at the start of the week and someone's using it on their data by the end of the week because of the preprint process. Whereas that would have taken months and months uh, if you had, if you had waited for formal journal acceptance and publication and so on. So um, the pace of science is, 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 uh, is, is speeding up as well. Um, people are putting their data online. People are sharing their results with the world. And they're uh, they're pre-registering them too, as we as we as we mentioned, and that's kind of part of the whole thing of being open and transparent. Um, and you know, the reason that this can happen now, whereas it would be much more difficult just a few years ago, um, is technology. We have now lots of websites, uh, repositories online, tools, um, journal websites are being remade to to make this you know make things more transparent. Um, you know, for instance, peer reviews are now sometimes published alongside the the article, and actually you can see the previous versions of the article before it went through the review process and after it went through the review process. So you get a full transparent view of, of, of everything that happened all the way through the, the publication process, which, you know, if you go back to what we were talking about right at the very start of the, of the, uh, the podcast, uh, this just, this just never would have happened. You know, people, people, uh, all of the peer review was done completely in, 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 you know, in, 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 
you know, complete complete privacy. So it just shines a light on the whole process, opens up to the whole world, and lets people see exactly what's going on. And you know, that is really the fundamental thing: is that scientists have just not been truthful enough about what they've been doing. Um, some of them deliberately, and some of them, uh, you know, just unconsciously have done stuff which is uh, which makes their uh, report of their experiment untruthful. Whereas it should be, um, it, it, it should be a, an accurate report of exactly how. They went about their research, so the open science movement, I think, uh, and you know that barely scratched the surface mm-hmm. of what's been what's been a huge uh, what's been a huge kind of revolution in the way that we publish stuff. It may yet be uh, the thing which solves a lot of these problems in 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 science. I mean, obviously, we need major changes in our incentive process. We have to move away from this idea of of uh, constantly being obsessed with with uh, uh, positive results um, and the way that journals work, the way that universities promote people and and the way that funders give money to people and just the things that scientists are interested in also need to change. But um, but but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, whenever I think about the open science movement and the fact that it seems to be growing on campuses, you get all these open science clubs and uh, 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 lecture series about open science and so on that are, that are popping up everywhere. Uh, and people obviously are using social media and the internet more generally to share uh, lectures, share materials, share ideas about open science. So when I see that, it makes me feel somewhat more optimistic, mm-hmm. even if, you know, thinking about all the fraud <laughs> and bias and negligence and hype uh, can sometimes get you down. You have an amazing uh, illustration in the book. There's a there's a popular comic about climate change where there's someone giving a presentation and they're saying, you know, um, green jobs and clean energy and better infrastructure yeah. and train transport and et cetera. All these great things that could be built in the process of solving, you know, climate change. And someone in the audience raises yeah. their hand and says, what if climate change is a hoax and we make the world better for nothing? And you have... A phenomenal kind of reframing of that comic where you say free registration and open access and no p-hacking and better peer review. And, you know, it's this kind of idea of even if there was no replication crisis, even if a lot of these issues didn't even exist, all these kind of changes you're proposing would make science uh, so much better uh, and so much more truth-seeking um, as an enterprise. So I really, really loved uh, that you emphasized that point. Of course, we do have a, a replication crisis, just as climate change is real. Um, and so all the more reason to, to kind of press on with a lot of these changes. I know we've barely, barely scratched the surface of kind of the solutions part of the book. Frankly, we've barely scratched the surface of the book as a whole. Um, like the subtitle says, you speak about um, fraud, bias, negligence, and hype. We've really only touched on the bias part of that uh, those uh, those four in uh, this conversation. So if listeners are interested in um, how, you know, scientific fraudsters and downright mistakes and how kind of media hype can distort the scientific process, they will they will have to read. I'd like to finish with one final question, um, which is about maybe your general thought in writing this book as a whole. Some might question why um, in an era where science is perceived to be under attack, you would choose to write a book criticizing science as a scientist, but you make a really, really compelling point that um, errors in scientific practice, false results, the replication crisis, does far more to undermine the trust in science than you know any criticism you could level at it. Could you speak a bit more about how you view uh, your role as a kind of insider, maybe a critic of science and trying to reform science as not undermining trust in science. 
Yeah, I mean the 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 worst the worst possible interpretation of this book and the most incorrect interpretation of this book is that oh science is completely uh, uh, irreparably flawed and um, so I can just believe anything I want like I can just believe that evolution didn't happen or I can believe that vaccines don't work or I can believe that you know the climate isn't being influenced by by uh, uh, you know um, human activity um, and so so or 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 whatever it is whatever weird belief you want it you want to have so that would be the most incorrect belief uh, the most incorrect uh, way of interpreting the book because what I'm trying to do in this book is make science more rigorous is is make everyone raise their standards no matter who they are uh, no matter what scientific field they work in um, I, I want everyone to to, to 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 have higher standards on what they accept as evidence um, and, and and so you know the idea is that uh, you know climate change denial or creationism or anything like that. Um, if we raise the standard of evidence, then they would be uh, they would not be uh, even you know worthy of of a, of a mere mention. Um, uh, but I'm doing this because I think science is really important. I'm doing this because science is the best invention that humanity has has ever made. Essentially, um, science is is uh, the 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 best way of discovering new things about the world. It's uh, uh, um, it's improved our lives immensely in in, in almost every single different way uh, that we could that we could imagine, and it's something which is um, uh, really precious. And unfortunately, a lot of the the, the ways that science is being done uh, now in in, in academia, um, uh, in the kind of you know the, the university system and in this, the, the scientific publication system more broadly, um, are are um, uh, corrupting science, they're making that really precious thing that we've that we've designed as as as, as humans. They're making it uh, unreliable. They're making the scientific literature become not a clear record of what we've done, but a really you know biased catalog of um, all our kind of human failings. And so, um, what this book is trying to say is that we need to bring science. Um, up to what we aspire it to be, which is this, you know, this reliable record. It doesn't need to be truth. Doesn't need to be absolute truth. In fact, you know, reaching the absolute truth is probably not something that we could ever do. Um, but it's, but it should be an accurate uh, a summary of, uh, of, 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 of of trying to get there and, and becoming less wrong all the time. Um, and so, at the moment, we have a system that that makes scientists more interested in publishing flashy, false, uh, positive papers that look good um, rather than publishing true, robust, but maybe a little bit bit more boring uh, research. And getting science back on track um, is going to be the best thing for science rather than um, just saying to people, well, science is science is flawed. Uh, we can just we can just believe in anything we want. So I'm I'm uh, you know I'm I'm writing this book from the perspective of someone who loves science and thinks that it's the, the most important thing we have, um, not as someone who is trying to get people to 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 mistrust science in any way. Well, Stuart, I am with you. I love science, and I hope that our listeners do too, and recognize that um, the problems that you identified are real and pervasive, but uh, solvable and tackleable. And definitely, uh, it can be possible to have a better, more robust, more truth-seeking, more replicable science in the future. So thank you for writing this book. Uh, it really, truly is a brilliant uh, page-turner um, that anyone interested in science, especially, I would say, practitioners of science in really all fields, we've kind of maybe, uh, I certainly think about psychology a lot because that's what I'm interested in, but you really touch on so many uh, different branches of science. So anyone interested in how science works, 
and especially whoever plans to do any form of scientific practice in their life, I think can gain so much uh, from this book. So I appreciate you writing it. And I appreciate you uh, speaking with me today about science fiction. Thank you so much. I'm really glad that you you like the book and uh, it's been really nice to chat. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you.